everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. And we are kicking off a beefed, beefed up version of the conversations we had during the Giro d'Italia. We're going to try to get out three episodes per week during this Tour de France, where we break down the racing and also the the oddities and events surrounding the race to give people who maybe aren't cycling super fans something to to latch on to and listen as they follow along with the race. Do you want to add anything to that, Andrew? I think that this is going to be the best Tour de France ever, Spencer, and I'm really excited to jump in. And I think that we should just rip the Band-Aid off and get started. So whether you casually follow cycling or you're a hardcore Tour de France fan, I think that we're going to have some takes that are a little bit different than what you're getting elsewhere. And let's just go ahead and jump in, Spencer. I've got a question for you out of the gate. You may have seen that Matthew Vanderpool is going to be wearing a $3,500 U.S. skin suit in his attempt to take the yellow jersey and the stage one time trial. The question that I have is, will he be using Cameron Wirf's wheel set? Yeah. Now, do you can you give a little bit of background on this? There seems to be an odd thing where Cameron Wirf, who maybe is on the team, maybe is a professional triathlete. I've still not completely nailed that down. Seems to be the only one on that team that has like decent aerodynamic wheels. And, you know, not even on Matthew Vanderpool's team, but somehow last year, Matthew Vanderpool. Oh, ended yeah. Up borrowing, I forgot. Yeah. 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 Ended up borrowing a set of Princeton Carbon Works wheels from Cameron Wirth to try to retain the yellow jersey during his his reign in the yellow jersey. And I believe it necessitated someone driving 10 hours from an undisclosed location where Cameron Wirth's wheels were to get them to Matthew Vanderpool for that time trial. To compete against Cameron be- Wirth's own team. Yeah, now I'm absorbing how weird that was. Yeah, it was a there were rather odd circumstances, but I didn't see any mention of what we all said Matthew Vanderpool would be on at that uh, stage one time trial. And of course, if you are someone who really gets into the nitty gritty, you would know that Matthew Vanderpool was those wheels were not sponsored correct, which is an odd thing for uh, someone on a world tour cycling team. But, you know, when you're Matthew Vanderpool, that's uh, what you're able to do, I guess. Yeah, so the, the Tour de France, if you're not familiar, 21 stages over 23 days. So there's two rest days in there. There's actually three this year. We'll pretend that the third one doesn't exist, though. It's kind of weird. Um, we start in Denmark and Copenhagen with a, with a I think, believe it's a 13-kilometer time trial, so just longer than a prologue. That's significant because we'll get the whoever wins the time trial will will have the leader's jersey and they might have enough of a gap to hold it through stages two and three, which are supposed to be sprint stages. Um, Denmark's very flat, but it's also very windy. It's also a very well-run country, so they have a lot of road furniture. Um, I think those are going to be really tricky stages, but potentially the winner of that stage could hold the yellow jersey all the way to La Planche de la Fille, Fille, I believe, on stage eight. That is, um, I don't know, stage nine. So, um, so they, they could hold it for a while. Um, Vanderpool, as you're discussing, did hold the yellow jersey in an early time trial last year, didn't win the stage. I think he's gotten better at time trials since then. We saw him, you know, really rip it in the stage two time trial. I think that was stage two at the Giro d'Italia just last month. Um, got beat by Adam, or yeah, Simon Yates, oddly. 
Uh, was okay in the final time trial, wasn't the best, but I think he's going to be even better than he was at the Giro at this tour. I wouldn't be surprised if he wins this, open, this opening stage. And then as you mentioned, time trials are a weird part of the sport where sponsors are paying like millions of dollars to be featured on these bikes. And they just kind of seem to ride whatever they want. Like a lot of these front ends are just custom made front ends. They aren't something that you that would come on the sponsor bike. And a lot of the wheels are just wheels that the riders have. Um, <laughs> it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But if you want to go fast and it's probably better for Canyon that or whoever their wheel sponsor is, I don't even know, wins the stage and gets the yellow jersey on someone else's wheels than on their own. They're probably making that calculation. Do you, I mean just to get into it? Do you th- who do you think is going to win this opening opening time trial? You know, it's tough to pick anyone other than Ghana for this opening time trial. What do you think? I mean, I love Ghana. I'm like a one man Ghana fan club. I you know, if he was like running for U.S. president in 2024, that I would just stop doing this podcast and and would probably would just run his campaign. I think he's one of the best time trialists of all time. I, I I wonder though if it's a little too short. You know, 13k. This was 40k, like a world championships. So I think he'd be unbeatable. You know, Vanderpool's so I'm trying to actually I'm talking, I'm trying to pull up to see how many turns there are in this. It's and it I it's fairly technical, which which helps Vanderpool a lot because he's so explosive relative to Ghana. Yeah, you know, I, I I'm kind of leaning towards Vanderpool winning this and taking the first yellow jersey over Ghana. Ghana's a fantastic pick, though. Um, probably the more likely to win. You know, Spencer, before we started recording, we were talking about a common denominator among our families that our children universally think that Wow Van Art has both the best hair, probably, and the pro peloton, and that they just have a level of adoration for him as a writer. Do you think that Wout stands a chance in this first time trial? Do you think there's any chance that he tries to take the yellow? That's a good question. I mean, we're in like a golden age of talent. Um, I'm trying to think, Wout, did he get second at the World Championships? or He either got second or third in the time trial World Championships behind Ghana recently, just last year. So, you know, on one hand, you'd say, yeah, sure, he could win. I do wonder if he's coming into this, you know, he's here to support two overall contenders in Jonas Vindegaard and Primoz Roglic, as well as trying to win the green jersey. I wonder if he's been maybe neglecting his time trial chops just a little bit, uh, maybe not putting as much time in on the TT bike as Vanderpool, who like his entire season is almost built around this time trial and then the stages after it to try to hold the jersey for as long as possible. That would be my concern about Vanderpool that he's just thinking about, or sorry, that Van Art, where he's thinking about winning green really is his main objective here. So I don't know if he's going to be as focused on the TT. What, what do you think? Yeah, he cert- yeah, he certainly has green on his mind. I just think he does have he does have a chance potentially of taking yellow on that first stage. And if he does, I think it introduces an element of chaos strategically that would be really unexpected and present quite a dilemma for Jumbo Visma because they have two riders who have the potential to take the yellow jersey who we know are coming into the race as co-leaders which is always problematic see Bernardino and Greg LeMond in a much earlier 
epoch of cycling or the Enios team in more recent years for how that tends to play out. And yes, we know that Wout is going to be going for the green jersey. But what if he took yellow on stage one? Then, you know, what do they do? What does Yumbo Visma do? Because they're going to expend a substantial amount of energy just trying to keep him in that jersey, perhaps for a day or two, or do they just let it go? So I, I don't think a rider of of Wout's caliber who is as competitive as he is with Vanderpool would let that go. No, that's so funny. I mean, obviously that'd be great on the surface if they won, but it would be terrible in many respects because really the three GC people you have to think about at this race are Tade Pogacar. He's won the last two editions. Primus Roglic on Yumbo and Jonas Vindegaard on Yumbo. There's Garrett Thomas kind of lurking fourth on my list. Um, I think he only wins this if something goes wrong. And those three guys have problems. So yeah, Yumbo's in this weird position where Van Aert could win on Friday, get yellow. And I'm just looking at the course. I don't think they're not going to give it away on stage two. That's going to be either a sprint stage or it goes over an 18 kilometer bridge, like right before the finish. Um, it could break up on there in the crosswinds that I'm sure will be present on a bridge that long in the North Sea. Um, Van Aert's going to have to stay in the front, um, try to probably keep Vinegard and Roglic up front for that. So he's not going to be able to give it away there. Stage three is a sprint stage. And then we're in the hills. Van Aert's not going to give it away there. They have the Roubaix stage on stage five. You know, really, he would have the probably have the the jersey all the way to stage seven when they have the first uphill finish and then that's when yumbo kind of wants to start their race so it would it would be borderline disaster if if he wins this time trial and has enough of a gap that time bonuses on stage two and three don't take it away from him yeah probably a low probability event but within the realm of possibility i think something interesting too to think about is ghana van art vanderpool are also good that you know maybe the gap between them is only four or five seconds and then you're going to have an, some interesting jockeying over the next few days to try to rack up time bonuses i mean those intermediate sprints are going to be wild the finals the positioning in the final sprints are going to be wild um really exciting racing hopefully if those guys are close in this in this time trial yeah absolutely and i think the 18 kilometer bridge and the crosswinds introduce another element of chance that could reshuffle the race in a really unexpected way, even knowing that there's the possibility that that might happen. You know, at this point, weather prediction, uh, weather forecasting, the manner in which teams try to take advantage of these relatively uncontrollable yet somewhat known elements um, can still lead to unexpected outcomes in races. So I'm really curious to see what happens in that circumstance and who gets shuffled to the back of the field and perhaps gets gapped in echelons. Yeah. And something I kind of just thought about as we were talking about this. So um, I don't know if anyone's looked at the betting odds for the green Jersey. It's, it's our guy Van Art at minus minus one fifty five. The next favorite is Peter Sagan. Who's won this seven times in his career. He probably won't win it this year. Cause he got COVID for like the 15th time a week and a half ago. Not great preparation. He's plus 500. 
And then Matthew Vanderpool is like way down the list. He's like, I just bet on him at plus 3,300 to win the green jersey. I think what's going on there is the conventional wisdom is Vanderpool won't be as competitive in these sprints. Um, you know, he'll obviously do pretty well on Friday in the time trial. And then I think the thought is he's going to be leading out. Um, they're ringing Jasper Philipsen, Jasper Philipsen to, for the sprints. I think the thought is he's going to lead him out and sit up. But if he's close, if he either holds yellow or close to yellow after stage one, he's not going to sit up. He's going to be fighting for podium spots in those sprints to try to get time bonuses, which, you know, could he's, he's an odd character where like physically he can win bunch sprints, but he just doesn't enjoy doing it. Maybe he doesn't think he has the skills. He's not comfortable there. So if we could like basically trick Vanderpool into going for bunch sprints, I mean, this is going to be some pretty, pretty exciting sprinting here with, you know, Van Aert's not really a sprinter, but he's also what he wants to be. He's one of the best in the world. And then we have kind of the more pure sprinters like Dylan Gronovig and Jasper Philipson, um, Fabio Jakobsen, who's maybe the best sprinter in the world. Maybe not. We don't quite know. Um, and that kind of brings me into the next thing I want to talk about where Mark Cavendish tied with Eddie Merckx for the most Tour de France stage wins in his career. Did not get selected by his quick step team. They they brought Fabio Jakobsen instead. What were your thoughts on that, Andrew? I had two thoughts about that. The first thought that I had was, why did he drop his chain so many times? <laughs> He's constantly dropping his chain. He can't right. stop dropping his chain. Yeah. Can't stop dropping his chain. He said it was something, there's just something about his style that's different from all other sprinters in the modern era of the sport that leads to him dropping his chain while, uh, you know, after sprinting. I don't know what's going on there, but that was the first thing that I thought about. The second thing that I thought about actually were all of the images of Cavendish following his victories, hugging, embracing his teammates, so incredibly gracious in victory, seems like someone who's very much uh, a team player. And then I thought about the video that surfaced last year of him berating his mechanic publicly. And I just wondered a couple of things. I wondered about whether there's more going on behind the scenes in the team than we, we might see in some of those more positive images that have come out following some of Cavendish's victories. And then of course, you know, Quickstep wants to win and they're going with the rider who they think has the highest potential today, who can actually get to the finish, can get through the mountains, can be a contributor to the team and other scenarios because this is not a very sprint heavy Tour de France and to achieve some of their other objectives, they really need a rider who, uh, who can make it to the finish. So those are some of the thoughts that I had. I wasn't particularly surprised. Cavendish is not the future of quick step. Uh, and even though they're not bringing him to the race, some have said, Hey, quick step is really blowing it from a marketing point of view because gosh, what great publicity would it be if Cavendish showed up and broke the record equally quick step is getting its name in the press at an incredibly high volume right now by not taking Cavendish to the race. So they are getting their name in the news and it is breaking out beyond uh, just cycling verticals. So they are getting a, a high level of exposure for their brand and their sponsors. So 
it uh, it might not seem intuitive that this is actually potentially a good marketing or PR move, but it might be. What do you think, Spencer? Yeah, no, that's all val- like really valid. The publicity, well, well, first of all, Patrick Lefebvre told us in January, Mark Cavendish is not going to the tour. We're taking Fabio Jakobsen. If you dig into the numbers, Jakobsen is something like, it's like a 52% win rate. So in 52% of sprint finishes that he contests, he wins. The next highest is like, 41%. So, and sorry, Spencer. And this year, I believe he's 10 for 14. I believe he's won 10 sprints of 14 that he has contested. Yeah. So, I think in recent times, that's a incredibly high kill rate. Like he's nailing it. Yeah. Like he's, he's, uh, he's trending even far above that already super high 51%. So, I mean, there's an argument to be made that he's the world's best sprinter. So, if we're working from that assumption, then I think the question that Quickstep probably asked themselves is, you know, is can Mark Cavendish win sprints against Fabio Jakobsen? If the answer is no, you take Jakobsen. And then the next question is, is he strong enough to win stages where Jakobsen is dropped? The answer is obviously no. So, I mean, yeah, there's no point. Everyone's like my co-host on my other podcast, Johan Bernil, who knows a thing or two about cycling was like, well, just take both of them. Well, it's like, I guess that is kind of appealing, but if you really break that down, so when when would he be sprinting? When when Jakobsen has like a flat, you know, and can't contest a sprint? You know, the, the double sprinter, sprinter strategy isn't super successful. We saw it last year with Alpeson where it's like a dueling piano situation where Merlier would sprint some days, Phillips and others, but... Philipson didn't win a stage at that tour and Merlier was the stronger rider and probably missed opportunities to win because of it. So I'm not a fan of the double sprinter strategy. And I also think this is a, a message from quick step of there's not going to be that many sprints. They don't go to the east part, eastern part of the country at all. There's really five flat stages. How many of those end up as sprint stages? Four, three. I don't think that's enough to facilitate bringing two sprinters. So and and obviously Fabio is like a wonderful, nice person, and we've seen Cavendish can be a difficult, cantankerous personality at times. If you have the choice to deal with one versus the other, you'd probably pick the nicer person. I'm sure that didn't hurt. Yeah, and again, Spencer, for people tuning in who might have, uh, you know, might be relatively new to following the Tour de France. Every rider who is selected for the tour is among the absolute very best in the world. And they also have to do more than whatever their specialty is within the race. So they're contributing to the team in different ways on different stages. Even if you're a superstar sprinter, you're going to be doing things to support other objectives the team might have during the race, whether that's going back to the the team car to grab bottles or an ice pack or food or whatever the case may be um, during some of the stages where they're not going to be going for the sprint or can't contribute. So they have to carry, they literally have to carry water. They have to carry food. They have to do a lot for the team. It's not just about what they can do on those sprint stages. And because of that, every rider has to there's not room for anything extra. You're not just bringing on a random writer hoping, hey, maybe they can maybe they can pull a rabbit out of a hat. <clears throat> um, 
you know, I like double rainbows. They're full on Spencer, but I'm not sure I like doubles for anything else when it comes to professional bike racing. And I was thinking about a quote from the Hagakure before we jumped on here today. The quote is, it is bad when one thing becomes two. One should not look for anything else in the way of the samurai. And I think that that's highly applicable to the Tour de France. And, you know, I'm sure we're going to get into this uh, with Roglic and Vinegard, but it's the same thing for sprinters. Like, I just can't see a team bringing two sprinters, having success with both of them, and that doing anything other than causing some tension and division within the team at a team at a time when they need to be incredibly focused and mission oriented and aligned on what they're doing. Yeah. And if it's, it seems like a lot, there's eight riders per team. It used to be nine. They've lowered it down to eight and you think, well, that's a lot of spots. But if you look at quick steps roster, they have Jakobsen, who's a sprinter, Michael Morkov, who's a lead out rider. Everyone else is super versatile. I was surprised how much that team was getting hate by the Cav, pretty much any casual cycling fans, like a Cav fanboy. Uh, and people were like really going at this quick step roster, but those are really good, versatile riders who can win on a lot of different types of stages. And even Jakobsen's a really big, phys- physically a big guy, which is helpful because you can put him on the front on a transition stage and he can help his teammates work. So. Yeah, anytime you're bringing a guy, a rider who can only do one thing, which Mark Cavendish, let's be honest, he's maybe the best sprinter of all time, but that's what he is. It's extremely dis, dis like disability. It's like a big negative to everything else you're trying to do. Uh, I I wasn't completely surprised by it. Um, we'll talk about the dual leader strategy in a little bit. That's can be equally disastrous, but I. I don't hate Yumbo's strategy of having both Ruglic and Vinegard lead, but I just want to ask you a question. Kale Buin, I haven't even mentioned him as far as elite sprinters at this race. Um, pretty good rider on paper. Do you think you do you think he wrecks before stage three? He's prone to wrecking. He I believe he's hit the deck in the uh the opening stanzas of the past several grand tours that he has raced, I think he's learned his lesson and I think luck's on his side. I think we're going to see him stay upright and potentially take a stage. I can't get his pro cycling stats profile to load, but yeah, I believe he crashed early in the tour last year and then also at the in the very first stage at the Giro this year. And then... You know, his numbers don't look good. Since 2019, he's been regressing. If you just go by how many races he's winning and then how the qu- the quality and caliber of those races, but crashing early in a Grand Tour will severely hurt your numbers because then you're not winning two or three stages that you could win in each Grand Tour. You know, he's a good sprinter. He's kind of Cav light or like Cav Gen 2. You know, I could see him having having some success uh i i do work for his team so i guess i hope he has success it will look good on me but you know this is this is a tough as i was saying with if they can convince vanderpool it's in his interest to start contesting these sprints that's that's some tough tough competition when you have riders like Fabio jacobson van art vanderpool all duking it out for the sprints you know it's it's crazy because 
Ewan's so good, but I could easily see him leaving this race without winning a stage. Yeah, I wanted to loop back to the Cav thing for a second as well, because there was one other thing about that that jumped out of me. And Spencer, I don't know if, if this jumped out of you. I'd love to hear your take. But, you know, as a former comms executive, I was the vice president of communications at Strava um, before I decided to focus on my podcast. And they they had Tom Steeles as the spokesperson and he was the person who was out front on this Cavendish announcement. I thought that was an interesting strategy and I can't recall, but I don't feel like it's typically Tom Steele's who's the person speaking on these matters of the press. I mean, it makes sense. He's a sports director for the team. He's the person who's in the car, but that's, I was like, Hmm, this is interesting. They're having Tom Steele's out front here, taking the arrows on this one. Did that jump out at you? Definitely jumped out at me. I mean, my theory there is inside these teams, there's usually a former sprinter who's runs, who's like basically his domain is the sprints and the sprint lead out. I, Tom Steele's, my guess is he runs the sprint department at Quick Step. And this was ultimately right. his decision. And as, as you're saying, they said, well, buddy, you made the decision. Like you can go out there and defend it to the public, knowing that it was going to be wildly unpopular. But yeah, I definitely noticed that. Lefebvre was not, you know, the guy can't stop talking to the media. Sometimes he is the media. He has a column. I don't think I heard anything from him about this decision, which tells us that they knew it was probably going to be pretty unpopular. Another question for you, Spencer, just on the publicity side, because again, this is the moment of the year when these teams are going to generate the highest ROI for their sponsors and a highly effective marketing strategy. We've now seen EF deploy multiple times is pulling a page from the streetwear world, partnering with a streetwear brand and doing a limited edition jersey drop for or full kit drop, bike drop, like whole rebranding for an event like the tour, which they've done again this year with Palace. You know, great, uh, great marketing moment. It's going to generate high ROI. We've seen them getting a lot of coverage for this. Um, Equally, why are other teams not just copying this? Because it's clearly a highly effective method. Method. I think we've seen some other teams try to issue NFTs for their their bikes or their jerseys, which you know uh, <laughs> might have worked four months ago. It's not going to work now. But EF, I think, does a really fantastic job of harnessing the power of this moment to drive the highest ROI for their sponsors. And I'm kind of baffled as to why other teams don't try something similar. I guess I have a few questions on this for you. So the collaboration certainly successful in generating conversation inside cycling media about the jerseys. Where's the out? Like, what's the positive output for the team? Like, they can go back to EF and say, look at all these, these pieces or like, what exactly is the upside for the team in that situation? Yeah. Well, the purpose of a cycling team is number one to go win races, but whether it's the alt tour that EF did last year with Lachlan Morton, I'm actually, I don't know if we have this on the agenda. I don't know what what uh, non-tour ride Lachlan Morton has planned during the tour, but I am curious if there's something coming. <clears throat> but yeah, I think EF does an amazing job of delivering marketing value and publicity 
to its sponsors through vehicles other than actually winning stages or doing well in races, which they clearly do that as well. But I think that this is one of the ways in which they can punch outside of the media bubble of outlets and typically covering the tour or people who might typically be paying attention to it and to get some different eyeballs on the work that they're doing. So yeah, I do think it's the case that they're probably turning around, going back to sponsors and showing how they're leveraging other people's audiences, in this case, Palace, and they're getting more eyeballs on the work that they're doing Indeed. and more results than just the results they're putting up in the race. Like, Do you think it's causing more people to buy study abroad trips from EF? Yeah, I think it potentially is. Yeah, I think that that's part of the halo effect of working with a brand like Palace is that you're getting to confer some of the coolness of that brand upon your study abroad trips if you're EF. And you're probably getting people to look at your brand in a new and different way than just, hey, we're a study abroad trip. It's like um, we're a study abroad organization that's aligned with one of the hottest streetwear brands in the world. And like we know and understand you. And then what's Palace getting out of this? Is it is this essentially like pro bono work for them or it it introduces them to cycling fans maybe who didn't know who they were? That's a great question. What is Palace getting out of it? And and then my next question is can I buy this jersey? Or I, I don't know if you can buy the jersey or not, but I do think, you know, I do think one of the things that Palace is getting out of it is beyond the competitive world tour level of cycling cycling has seen a lot of success particularly on the gravel side with a lot of celebrities and influencer type people i I just think you're getting a lot of people who traditionally you know probably 15 years ago they probably would have been really into road racing um because of lance right i mean like we saw this in the early 2000s between Lance beginning to win and when Lance left the sport, it just drew a lot of highly influential people into the sport. These days, gravel is doing the same thing, whether it's somebody like Steve-O, who's really into gravel racing or gravel riding, UFC fighters uh, like Conor McGregor. We're just seeing a lot of new and different types of people who aren't quote unquote traditional cyclists getting into the sport because of gravel. They like all the things that it offers, being, being able to get out away from cars see new places, enjoy community. And I think that that's one of the things that's, uh, that's happening here. Well, yeah. So EF's fantastic in the sense that like you can buy their Jersey or you can even buy Rafa jerseys that are like inspired by EF, but don't look as ridiculous as EF jerseys. And you might want to wear them. It's baffling to me. A lot of teams don't almost no other teams do that. Like if I want to buy a pair of like race quality Bora bib shorts, I don't even think I would be able to. Like, that's insane. Here's my concern with all the EF stuff. Like, why did people like Lance? Because he won. You know, when you're doing all this cross promotion and you have Lachlan Morton riding around doing an alt tour, it's all fantastic. It all generates conversation. But when you're one of the worst teams in the sport, as they currently are, is it pulling away too much is does it make it look a bit ridiculous where you're like well that's awesome Lachlan Morton's like riding ahead of the tour in France but maybe you should hire riders who are good at the actual race like at a certain point if you're not winning 
do you lose the cachet? Do people just love winners? And is winning the key to everything? Depends on who you talk to, right? And I think that's part of what's... I know that we're talking about the Tour de France today, but it's hard to talk about it without talking about what's happening in gravel. And I think one of the transitions that's happening in gravel right now with the great debate about the spirit of gravel and where that spirit actually resides within the human body and on gravel race courses. Uh, you know, one of the things that's happening in gravel now is that there's starting to be a focus on actually winning the races. And it's when people win gravel races, they almost have to apologize for the fact that they're there to compete and win the race. Everybody has to talk about how they're, you know, it's all about the spirit of gravel they're out riding bikes, they're racing, but they're not really racing. So that, I think that that's one of the things that's happening within the sport right now. And it also perhaps is part of why road racing is kind of like, you know, on, on the decline in the United, it's not kind of, it's certainly on the decline in the United States for uh, many different reasons, but just culturally, there's a whole thing about just like the vibe, the community participating. And then at the pointy end of the race, there's often a lot of apology for actually being there competing and trying to actually win the race. It's kind of confusing. Yeah. It's like a, like, I think road race, like tour de France numbers, viewing numbers are up in the U S like it's getting more popular as far as like competing in road races. This is coming from someone who's spent a lot of their life competing in road races in the U S there's almost no reason for any of us to ever be doing that. You know, unless you're like a youth rider trying to make it professionally, Gravel just makes so much more sense. Like we're going there and we're having a good time and we're competing and like, that's fun. And that's your outlet. Um, I do wonder a little bit, I, I don't want to say names. I'll, I'll mention it when we stop recording, but like some of these people who've gone from pro road racing to pro gravel, you know, some people are interesting people just inherently. And like, I would fall like Casey Neistat. It's like, I watched the man walk around New York City for like years in his daily vlog. I'm just interested in Casey Neistat. Most people aren't like that. Like if you're a boring pro on the road and you just go over to gravel and you don't win, is that sustainable? Like, can you keep generating interest? Yeah, I, it's like, and then I just start to wonder like interest for interest sake. Does, like, where does that leave you? It is like at a certain point, do you, do you have to like have some sort of catchment system where you're good? You're actually good at the thing that you're promoting. I don't know. Uh, these are un, un, <laughs> unstructured questions I have about the nature of, of promotion and like, what's the point of sponsoring any event? But I mean, like, it's just like Red Bull, like Red Bull sponsors teams in sports and they're awesome. And like, it makes me kind of want to have a Red Bull. If they were all bad, I don't think I would be as into Red Bull. I just feel like, like with EF, I just worry that they're missing the first brick of the building should be being good. And then leveraging a relationship with Palace. Like if, like if Alpecin was doing that, it'd be dynamite, you know, cause like Vanderpool is a generational talent. It is, I guess, to go back to your original question, it is weird that like, why isn't Quickstep doing anything like that? Or Alpecin? Yeah, why are they leaving it to EF to soak up all that non-core cycling media? It just seems like low-hanging fruit at this point. There's an established playbook for doing it and any other brand could just step in and do that. 
it's a it's a slam dunk. I don't know why other people aren't doing it because it was a big surprise and somewhat shocking and to purists in the sport, probably in a negative way, but to most people who follow the sport, yeah, it generated a lot of discussion among friends on, you know, on uh, different places on the internet, on social media, when they did the palace collab with the ducks. I don't know, you know, I don't know what it was about ducks, quack, quack, but now anybody could do it. And that is a great question, Spencer. Like where, where does winning fall in this equation? And when I think about winning and when I think about this tour de France, one of the questions that I have for you is Nairo Quintana. (laughs) <laughs> I just did to answer this question before you ask it. I just did an in-depth Tour de France preview. Didn't mention Quintana one time. <laughs> I forgot he was in the race until you just said his name right now. Right. So where is Quintana in the the modern era of cycling? And does are we going to see him try to do anything in this race? Is he is he going to be a stage winner? Is he going to go for? For what? He, like, what do you think his objective is at this? He race? could win a stage. I mean, he's a good rider. Um, I dove dove into his power numbers at the. I think it was the Tour de la Provence earlier this year. The guy's solidly good. Um, he used to be the best climber in the world. The the question I have is, I I suspect he's not gotten any worse. I think he's just as good as he was when he was younger. Just everyone else is. It's just a higher quality of of rider he's going against now. And that's why we've seen his performance drop off. Another thing is he stopped top 10 at Grand Tours in 2019. Since then, he's not been a viable GC contender like in any, in any way. Like I would not bet on him to finish top 10. Could he win a stage? I think he certainly could. Um, where it gets interesting is he should have gone to the Giro. Like that race was perfect for him. He didn't go to the Giro because his team manager said, there's like a quote where he's like, Nairo still has the delusion that he can win the Tour de France, so we're sending him to the Tour. Uh, so, so it seems like he is committed to the GC. I don't think his body is committed to the GC. You know, there's crosswinds, which he's very good at riding in in these first few stages. I, I suspect he'll be high placed coming out of Denmark, and he might win a stage, but I wouldn't expect too much from him in the, in the in anything other than that. Yeah, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, except when it comes to going for stage wins. I agree. I think we're going to see Quintana win a stage in this tour. Yeah, I, I was just like looking at a list of prop bets, and I didn't see his name on it, but you can bet, like, will so-and-so win a stage? If you can find Quintana, that could be a good bet. I mean, he's he's good at climbing. He's good at high-altitude climbing. He could definitely get a stage. And he's, so, and he's bad enough that it's, it's, it's funny balance. You have to be bad enough to lose time to have the freedom to get up the road to win a stage and like he perfectly checks all those boxes um you have a note here i would love to expand on it just says minimal viable sagan um what are your thoughts on on peter sagan yeah the good old mvs the minimum (laughs) viable sagan yeah the question is you know what can sagan do in this tour coming back from that 17th bout of covid which, I mean, his most recent positive test was less than two weeks ago. It seems like he must have been asymptomatic. They're putting him in the race. Equally, going back to delivering value for sponsors, we know that Specialized is absolutely all in on Sagan. He has that Cavendish-level treatment. 
from a hundred percent from specialized, there's a specialized line of products. And I believe, a a signature tarmac that you can get from specialized. So just in terms of delivering sponsor value, sponsors absolutely want them, want him there. Can he, win? is he going to have any pop? Can you have pop if you have COVID? Um, According to the UCI, I guess you could have pop if you are not contagious and not likely to infect third person. Yeah, we'll, we'll discuss um, that in, <laughs> in one second. But I do think it's important to go through. Let's go through the Sagan timeline. And yeah, we're we're okay. actually going to have to skip a lot. That's how much he's had COVID. Um, I think he's had three. So beginning of 2022, he, the man has had COVID two, possibly three times. Signs a huge contract with Total Total Energies, which is a French team who was once bad, and the plan was you hire hire Peter Sagan and then you become good. Um, oddly, they hired Peter Sagan, who was not good because apparently he had long COVID all spring, um, couldn't perform due to it. The rest of the team fantastic, like they're having the best year they've ever had. Um, Sagan comes to Park City in the United States to recover from. From COVID, he's like a is like a 18th century like literary character where it's like I went to the the Alps to clear my tuberculosis, and a, the training block appeared like it went well. He goes to the dirty cans or the unbound gravel 100, doesn't try in it, just like coasts through it, goes straight to the Tour of Switzerland, wins a stage. He wins stage three. He looked great, like he looked like he got in a time machine and he was old Peter Sagan in that sprint. Stage four rolls around, and this is what worries me slightly. Um, there was It was like a reduced sprint stage with a hill towards the end. Like This is the type of stage that Peter Sagan feasts on. Um, he should be winning this. He, it's not even competitive. Like He gets dropped before the climb even starts. You know, either that's Peter Sagan just being like, what, I just won a stage and I made the party last night and like I don't care about this. This is the Tour of Switzerland. It's stupid. Or he just is not able to climb like he used to. If he's not able to climb like he used to, it could be hard for him to win a stage here because is he going to win a sprint against the guys we've been mentioning? I don't think so. Um, you know, the cobbled stage on stage five would, would be the most obvious. Sorry, stage four would be the most, no, sorry, stage five would be the most obvious solution to this. So, you know, my answer is, you know, maybe, but if he can't climb as well as Van Art and Vanderpool, and he can't sprint as well as Jakobsen, Van Art, and Ewan, I don't really see where he gets a stage win. And is he actually over long COVID? I mean, I know he's had or short prior COVID. to this. <laughs> oh, right? sorry. Yeah, and then I mean, he, prior- sorry. Then he drops out of Tour of Switzerland with COVID. So, yeah. Yeah. That right. was two weeks ago. I, I can't imagine he feels that good. Yeah, I can't imagine he feels that good either. And even though he did look strong before the most recent bout of COVID, we're kind of acting like, oh, we're in a, a post-COVID-ish era, even though COVID is going to play a huge role in this Tour de France, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. It, it's just completely unknown. Like, let's say Sagan actually is over his long COVID and somehow he's able to get over what sounds like is an asymptomatic bout of COVID most recently. I don't know, like you're going into the Tour de France, the world's most challenging bike race with the highest level of talent and the highest level of pressure. How is his body going to hold up to that? I mean, I hope 
I hope he holds up great. I hope that we see Sagan firing on all cylinders. I hope we see him contesting the green jersey, but maybe not. Yeah, it's something that maybe would would make a Sagan fan feel better. So on June 26th, so that's three days from recording, he did win the Slovakian National Road Championships. Um, It doesn't look like any other serious professionals were in the race except his brother who's on his team. It was a five-hour race, though, and he won the race by almost two minutes. So that's a serious effort. You know, that would tell us that perhaps it was just a completely asymptomatic case of COVID, and he's coming into this race fairly fit. You know, could he contest the green? Probably. I, I just can't see him winning it. So I guess the minimum viable, to go back to our point, minimum viable Sagan, I think we're going to hit that line. I think he might. I could see a lot of third and fourth place finishes on stages and like him hanging around the GC convert, sorry, the green jersey conversation. I just don't think he's going to be able to beat, you know, kind of the riders that are the new Sagans. It's funny to think, you know, he was probably the best rider I'd ever seen when he was in his prime and he won three world championships in a row. It's interesting to go back now and like he never had the versatility that Wout Van Art and Matthew Vanderpool have. You know, Wout Van Aert won a double Von Two mountain stage at the Tour, a time trial, and a sprint. Sagan couldn't have done that in his prime. So, you know, he was probably a better classics rider than those guys and probably would could have worked him over on some of the transition stages. But, you know, it's just wild how much the sports progressed even since Peter Sagan was at his peak. One thing that hasn't progressed, and this is part of what's beautiful about the sport, is the proximity that spectators can have to the athletes. And last year, we saw that horrific crash where the spectator jumped in the road trying to get the sign on TV. Do you think we're going to see some spectator-rider contact here in the first few stages, Spencer? Or is that a thing of the past? I hope. No, that sucked. That was not fun. you know, if we're just playing the odds on this, it's a foreign start, which means probably pretty excited crowds and probably less behaved. Um, I don't know if you remember like Yorkshire. This was maybe six years ago at this point. It was like really bad. Like people were in the roads taking selfies when the Peloton was coming through. You know, Denmark, potentially they're a little bit maybe better behaved than drunk British people. Um I'm not sure. I don't have a great read on that country. You know, we could very possibly see, especially with Denmark, such a a lot of the road infrastructure is so compressed. I mean, you you could definitely see some rider fan interaction. I hope not. I mean, maybe people will be on more high alert because that was such a high profile and somewhat destructive incident to the rest of the race. It didn't take out any major GC stars, but it kind of like laid the groundwork for for Yumbo being weaker and then Roglic being in the wrong place later, like four stages later when he had that crash and crashed out of the race. So I hope we don't see any. What, what do you think? Yeah, we're going to see a spectator uh, contact with a rider. We're going to see some kind of giant crash in the first couple of stages, not in the time trial. And hopefully no, that would be bad. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, but thinking back about Wow Fan Arts Tour de France time trial wreck, I hope that we don't see contact between a rider and a barrier. No, we did see pretty similar course in Hungary for the Giro in the opening time trial. 
and it was written pretty cleanly. Um, you know, you'd just hope for like the same thing. That was kind of a, if I'm remembering that correctly, it was like, a, that was a difficult, probably incorrectly placed barrier. So hopefully they can get a better barrier down than that. Um, one thing you mentioned earlier, so this COVID policy, like COVID destroyed the tour of Switzerland. It was a 51% attrition rate because of COVID positives. That would be obviously catastrophic for the tour. One thing I've noticed in professional cycling is you can go from massive devastating outbreaks to like even just a few weeks later, no one tests positive in an entire race. Like if you remember last year, you know, then I don't even think there was more than three positive tests in any of the Grand Tours. And then in 2020, when COVID was rage, raging, I don't think there were any significant positive tests. So something that the Grand, it, COVID knows to respect the Grand Tours, I think is what we're supposed to take from that. Not that they don't actually test for COVID when the races are important. Um, they did implement a strange COVID policy where you can have riders in your team test positive and the team is no longer forced to pull out. There's also a strange amendment where even a rider can test positive with a PCR test. And if they are, you know, here, I'm trying to find the odd language that if the medical doctor at the race, the UCM medical doctor establishes that the rider is not contagious and not likely to infect third persons, they won't be forced to leave the race, which if I'm reading that correctly, like Tade Pogacar could be leading the race, test positive for COVID and gets to stay in the race. It seems to me that if you're testing positive, you're contagious. I'm pretty sure that's how a test works. Um, it's like measuring your, the viral load that you're shedding. Um, I think this is just a way for them to say, well, if you're important to the race, you can stay in the race, even if you have COVID. Probably if you're asymptomatic. If you're symptomatic, I don't think you'd be able to make the time cut. I think the racing would be too hard for you. So it's just a strange wrinkle with COVID leading into this. Potentially could keep the race together a little bit. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. And I, I think that this can cut both ways. You know, it can potentially lead to riders who at the moment seem like they have an incredible chance of doing something big at the tour, winning the tour, placing high on the GC, winning a stage. We could see them exit the race and that potentially, you know, like that would be a bummer on a variety of levels equally when the deck is reshuffled like that it does it does introduce this element of chaos and chance and just things that could never happen otherwise start to happen and i think that that randomness is part of why pro cycling is so compelling because on any given day in any given race you have a sense of who you think might win but equally who knows what the course is going to bring, what the weather is going to bring, what the wind's going to bring, or in this case, who might end up being out of the race due to COVID. And while tragic, it might actually make the race even more exciting and unpredictable than we suspect it might be today. Yeah, there is like, you hit a critical mass point though. Like I feel like the 2006 tour, a lot of the favorites got pulled before the start because there was like a big they busted a doping doctor who was doping like everyone in the race. They all get pulled. Floyd Landis wins with a pretty spectacular attack. I wonder if you were watching that race as a non-American, if like that sucks. Like, is that not a fun race? And then Oscar Pereira was given the win after Landis tested positive. And then just imagine if Landis is an 
in that race. That's a boring race. Oscar Pereira wins the Tour de France. Like, I don't know. I would be bummed if... I don't know. I'm just trying to think of like a milquetoast rider, like a, who's a career journeyman who's in this race. Like if, I don't know, Alexi Lusinko wins this tour because everyone else drops out, I would find that somewhat disappointing. I would want my, I would want my money back. That's understandable, Spencer. We all... We all have different feelings about these things. <laughs> but Switzerland would be, I guess that's your proof of concept where that, that's right. about as bad as it can be. And you still had a pretty good rider winning. I mean, Garrett Thomas was a worthy winner of that race. Um, the problem is it was never in doubt, really. After Vlasov dropped out, it was like you could have fast-forwarded that race to the end. You know, that's that's kind of my fear that if we – it actually the dropouts make it even more boring because what if everyone but Tadej Pogacar gets COVID and then you have like Tadej Pogacar versus I I don't want to be mean um, Pierre Latour you know like would that be an exciting race uh, I I hope that doesn't happen. Is Chris Froome going to make this race exciting? Uh, absolutely not. What are we going to see out of Froome? We're going to see a lot of rear shots um as soon as the racing goes uphill of him being dropped and then we're going to be like why is the camera still on him what's going on at the front of the race can we see the gc attack that's happening why are we still in chris Froome? oh there's Thibaut pino he's also being dropped what's going on at the front of the race that's my prediction what do you what do you think he's bad he is bad i will say he did this race last year and finished and he was probably the slowest rider in the race he's better than that so he will not get last place. That's my prediction. What do you? What value do you see for Israel Premier Tech bringing him to the race? Is this a publicity thing? I mean, they're in a tough spot. They're paying him five million euros a year. This is kind of the same thing with the calf publicity. It's like everyone's like, you're leaving all the publicity on the table. It's like, yeah, but what if you take him and he doesn't win? Then you're just getting questions every day, stressful questions about why he's not winning. Like that's not totally a positive, but. Israel, they're paying him a lot of money. Five million euros a year. He's their marquee rider. And it's, if you look at that roster, it's not clear to me that there's a better rider to take. You know, I think for them, they, they've painted themselves into a corner and you just got to like take your licks. And while I think Froome will struggle to be a factor, I don't disagree with their, their decision to take him. I think that's the only decision they had. And they're not leaving. I don't think they're leaving anyone at home that would win a stage. So it's a case of run what you brought. Yeah, exactly. They're locked in for five years with them. You know, if they were right. thinking more strategically, even with someone, that's a big matzo ball on your, on your roster there. If, even if, you know, even with that, I think you could work around that. The, the problem they've done is they have Froome, who's old and not as good as he used to be. And the rest of the roster is old guys. You know, they needed like, they need like Arno Delis, who's on Lotto and he's 20 years old and like probably the best young sprinter in the sport. Like if they had some of those to balance out the older members of the roster, they'd be in a maybe a more competitive position where they have some room to work with. But yeah, I don't I don't think they could do anything other than than take them. You know, some of those other guys are are decently interesting. Like Jakob Folsang, it's amazing to me at this age. He, I think he's 37, how good he can still be. 
you know, he won't be a GC factor in this race, but he could win a stage. And same thing with Mike Woods. Um, I, I think he could easily win a stage, probably compete for the KOM jersey too. Yeah, I think Mike, I, that's exactly how I see Mike Woods uh, playing a role in the race. I think he has potential for a stage when we might see him in the, in the, uh, the King of the Mountains jersey at some point during the race. Yeah. And I mean, the only thing I, I worry about Woods though with the KOM jersey is got to go down. Yeah, the hill. getting down the hill. I mean, some people point out that maybe he's better getting better at downhills. It's, that's possible. It's never going to be like silky smooth the cinder, but I'm curious to see what he can do. Um, what so so Bahrain is a team reading my mind. You're reading my mind. Spencer. Who is pretty good? Uh, they used to be very bad. Now they're quite good. Uh, they keep getting raided by the police. The French police cannot stop raiding this team. They raided them at the tour last year, their hotel rooms. They tested their hair, which was pretty intrusive. And, you know, if you're taking something, it will be a hair follicle test. They found muscle relaxers. Um, we can get into that in a second. But really nothing. Nothing. They found nothing illegal. And then they raided the riders' homes, um, even outside of France, before this tour just a few days ago. Andrew, you have a theory on this. Do you want to share this? Why are the French police giving them so much trouble and then also never returning anything positive, so to speak? Yeah, we're seemingly in a much cleaner era of the sport. At least that's the appearance, which is great. Um, we've seen performance science advance. We're seeing younger riders with more... Um, sophisticated training methodologies just because there there's much more open source information about how to develop world-class cyclists and uh, with power training and other methodologies decades of data at this point which is great so we've seen the rise of these younger super athletes um coming up in the sport pojakar being you know a, a prime example of that equally We've continued to see these raids of uh, the the Bahrain team, and they always seem to happen at a moment when there's a maximum amount of attention focused on the sport. And you could say, hey, this is great that authorities are being vigilant, they're doing their job, they're investigating whatever information that they have. But I know that in 2021, uh, Bahrain itself stated and that they were being that they were being targeted um because of rumors started i believe by other people inside the sport there was just a lot of whispering going on that was their theory about why they were targeted for those raids as you noted nothing has come of it and we've seen this so many times in cycling in the past in professional cycling where there are just these ongoing drawn out investigations of doping charges and the instance of Operation Puerto, which you referenced earlier, sometimes it does result in riders getting jammed up and getting caught for cheating. But also sometimes these things just go on and on and on and we never see anything happen. Now, whether this is the case or not, one thing that I have to wonder is if you're the doping authorities and you don't have any convictions, you haven't caught anybody in order to substantiate the size of your staff, the tools that you use, you periodically have to have 
some moment drawing attention to what you're doing and showing that there is still this threat. And I wonder if that's potentially what's going on here. I wonder if the authorities are going after Bahrain at a moment when they can generate maximum publicity for the work that they're doing, even though there don't seem to be any results coming out of this because they're substantiating their own existence and perhaps trying to get a larger budget. That's me being cynical, but we see this happen in a lot of other areas of life. Uh, and I'm curious if that might be the case here. Yeah, it gets a little confusing because I, so Arkea got raided Quintana's team in 2020 at the tour. And he actually served a night in jail, maybe multiple nights. It wasn't clear to me what happened. That What's weird is that happened during the race. Journalists knew about it and then no one said anything until like two weeks later. So it's like a little odd, like maybe report on that if you're a journalist and you see a hotel room getting raided. Um, I think what's hap- what happened with Arkea was that was police. Like that was local Marseille police, not a doping authority. And I think the Bahrain raid might have been police as well. Like not any type of international doping, anti-doping authority. I can definitely see French police being like, well, we just need to drum up support for like basically keep our budgets up look we're going after dirty cyclists i bet that's a winning policy in some quarters of france you know the bahrain stuff i do you know i get frustrated like with the archaea thing where it's like well if you're gonna raid them and put them in jail like you gotta come back with something like you can't just keep raiding and never have anything that's just somewhat unfair to the riders involved like well, maybe they're not doing anything wrong. And then they're just getting, their hotels are getting raided all the time and everyone assumes they're doing something wrong. Um, the Bahrain stuff, I don't hate it because I like the hair follicle test. Um, I thought that was cast as like bad that they had these muscle relaxants in their body, but it's not illegal. And they found nothing illegal in their systems. Like that actually should have been a win. Bahrain should have spun that as a win. Like, look, like they, they opened up the hood and nothing was here. Um, the, th- the only thing about that is like in modern doping, no one does anything at races or they try not to. What you do is um, you do everything at home. You know, like when you're training, you're, you're micro dosing EPO and testosterone. Maybe you even got to like the Canary Islands, uh, Columbia, places that are hard for anti-doping authorities to get to and test you. Ideally, you're at altitude. So even if they, your bio passport is going to show jumping around and you can just say, well, it's because I was in Crested Butte or Aspen or on a you know hotel on Tenerife. Um, that, that's the playbook. And you do everything at home. Once you get to the race, you have the benefits of the microdosing you've been doing. But you know, if you're smart, you don't have anything with you at the race. So a race, a raid at the race probably won't return anything. That's why I don't hate with Bahrain where they, they raided their houses. Like that's pretty serious. If they could get like an inter-European authority to give them permission to raid someone's home in Slovenia when they're a French police authority, like French, basically French police, you know, that's what seem like there's something credible there. I know the team is run by this guy. His name is like Milan Erzon. He's like a bit of a shady, he's shady. I say he's shady in the sense that he was connected to, there was an Operation Alderlast, which was a dope, like a cross-country ski doping operation going on in Germany where they caught a bunch of people, like literally they busted into the hotel rooms and they were taking blood bags at the ski world championships. And the doctor was connected to this guy who runs Bahrain. I assume that's why they're getting so much attention. Um, and I do appreciate that they 
check the houses because that's where probably any shenanigans are going to be going on. But I, I, yeah, it's, it's weird when you don't bring anything back. And I think that it used to be, I forget the name of the lab. Like there was like a cycling anti-doping authority that's been sunsetted as like recently as like 15 months ago. Now it's some sort of like international body that does every Olympic sport and they keep it much more low profile. Like I think they're testing. I don't think they ever really release positive tests. That's kind of the feeling I get that it's more of a, Hey, you need to like chill out or, you know, I don't think that those guys are that group as aggressive as the former group. So it gets complicated and like, it's always a little weird to me when you get French police involved, like, why are they really like, and why are they never raiding? Like, why is Manchester City never getting their hotel room raided when they come to play Paris Saint Germain? Like, who's who's deciding which teams to raid and who isn't? Yeah, and again, if if you're not super deep into the details and the history and lore of professional cycling, there have been uh, a number of incidents uh, that you've probably read about in the in the news in the past about teams at the Tour de France being busted doping. And if you are deeply into the sport, you might have read the book, Breaking the Chain. Um, It works from Paul Kimmage, uh, other people about the doping practices that used to happen during the tour. And if you read those, you would know that doping laws in France relative to a place like the United States are quite different. And they're very, very they're much more serious. And if you were caught doping, the consequences are, they're grave. Like they're very serious consequences, criminal consequences. Um, if you're caught with doping products or if you're a professional athlete caught doping in France. So one of the, one of the knock on consequences of this, like there's a reputational implication of this, of course, but we're talking about in the week leading up to the biggest event in professional cycling of the year and of of the careers of a lot of these riders that they're having their homes raided. And this is a, a period of time when they're trying to peak. They're trying to be tuned and razor sharp going into competition. So you have to think that the Bahrain team, whatever's going on there, like they they have to be rattled. And it's just like a level of of stress that's going to potentially detract from their performance. And equally you wonder about, you know, what else might be coming during the tour, whether it's for Bahrain or for some of these other teams. I'd I'd be shocked if they actually got anything. I don't know. (laughs) It's like, when's the last time a raid happened and they've returned anything, you know, was it over a decade ago? I can't think of anything that's, Really, the only thing, reason we find out anything anymore is because of like police questioning, you know, and, and other types of like uh, Ineos was basically getting like testosterone patches delivered to the to the HQ, but I think that only came out because of HR violations. Like basically, one of the coaches was abusing people in the office, and it only came out that they were also getting drugs delivered to the office because of that. HR investigation. So that was just for personal use, Spencer. Yeah, no, that personal. That's that's a wild story. We won't get into here, but that got weird yeah. very fast. Um, we so we should probably wrap it up for this 
block of first three stages. And then we'll be back on to talk about after stage three, after the Denmark block is over, where we stand, you know, is Bahrain, has Bahrain been busted? I don't think they will have been. Um, and I'm excited to see who's in yellow. What, what are you most excited about for this opening weekend of racing in Denmark? I'm excited to see what happens for Garrett Thomas. It was really interesting to see his result at uh, the Tour de Suisse. And I'm, you know, I'm just interested to see, does he still have it? That definitely, that was an, an interesting performance. It would indicate that physically he's, he still has it. The thing I'm most interested about is, does Garrett Thomas at his best, is he good enough to beat Bogatra and Roglic? I don't think he is, you know. I think those guys would have to suffer misfortune, and, and they could. They very well could for him to win. Um, just his climbing power-to-weight numbers were never as good as Roglic or Bogachar. But the big, big test for him is going to be just surviving until the second rest day. You know, if he can get to stage 10 and he's still high up in the GC, things could get interesting for sure. Um, it's, you, know, you never know what's going to happen to any of these guys. I think he's the third or fourth strongest rider in the race. Yeah, and I love to see him out there representing for Oakley Eye Jackets. Um, so, Spencer, what about you? What are you excited about heading into this opening stanza of the race? Well, I'm excited for the bridge on stage two. You know, I hope it's windy. I I love crosswinds. I cannot imagine. I mean, that's literally as exposed as you can be on an 18-kilometer-long bridge. If it's windy, that could get really, really messy really fast. And that's the biggest gaps we've seen in recent tours have been crosswinds, not mountains, not time trials. So I think that could be fascinating. I'm also, I just want to see like out of our, our little prodigies like Ghana, Vanderpool, Van Art, like who emerges as the winner in stage one and how close are those gaps? And can, can one of them try to snipe the yellow jersey from the other with, with uh, time bonus seconds? Well, we didn't even talk about this, but if you're Enios, you know, it's probable Ghana's going to take the yellow. And how does that impact their greater ambitions? And do they want to burn those matches early on in the race defending yellow or do they just let it go? It, and is there a chance that they'd have to let it go based on the profile of the following stages? I think Enios, you know, I've heard, heard this. It's not just me making this up. They know they're probably not going to win this race overall. They need to show something for it. I mean, their budget is absurdly high. So they want to win that stage. They want yellow. And they want Ghana and yellow for as long as possible. Because with the quality of riders in this race, there's no guarantee they get back into yellow again. Um, you know, Garrett Thomas, I'm, you know, he's good. He's fit. He's not the favorite. You know, so you can't. They're in no position to be to be shipping yellow or giving up yellow. And even Yumbo, the fact that they're letting Van Art go for green tells us that they're not super confident in their chances of beating Pagachar either. So I think anyone but UAE is just win, win and get yellow and hold that yellow as long as you can. I, I don't think too many teams are getting cute with just how much better Pagachar is than, than everybody else. There you have it. All right. Well, thanks, Andrew. And we'll be back probably early on July 4th with, with our next episode to talk about what we just saw. But check out the Choose the Hard Way podcast in between if you want to listen to more Andrew and check out 
the Beyond the Peloton newsletter, which will be going out daily during Grand Tours to premium subscribers. So thanks for listening and thanks for joining us, Andrew. Great to be here, Spencer. Looking forward to what's next. All right, me too.